Um, if we could make this a heckle-free environment for the next uh, however long we're up here, that would be amazing. Um, hey, folks, and welcome to Brown and Out. Today we're speaking with... Gustavo Mercado Muñiz. How's it going tonight, Gustavo? It's going. It has been a week. We're in the middle of Pride Week here at the center, and I started about a month ago and dove right in headfirst. <laughs> Yeah. Loving every minute of it? Most minutes. The minutes I'm not loving, I'm usually just dead tired. This has been um, a week where you're interviewing folks for a position at the Pride Center, right? Yeah. So it's been two days of full interviews and extroverting, which is no longer my forte. Yeah. So I'm very excited to recharge after this with all you beautiful brown folk. Do you, do you consider yourself an introvert more or an extrovert more? I was an introvert growing up, 100%. Um, did I say that right? I was an extrovert growing up. Okay. And about mental health anxiety hit in college because I went to a predominantly white institution. And I immediately was like, and shut down. Like, I need more time to recharge. I need more time to heal after a lot of these interactions yeah <laughs> uh, I was just talking with someone recently about how um, do you know the Myers-Briggs personality test mm -hmm. yeah you're familiar so how um, it might be accurate in the moment but mm -hmm. over time in a person's life how they can switch from yeah. all those different poles um, is everyone familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality test basically yeah so you're saying you feel like you kind of went from being more extroverted to more introverted. Yep. Because of Dartmouth? <laughs> partially because of Dartmouth, partially because Dartmouth, well, I guess that is Dartmouth-related. It triggered a lot of my, like, anxiety and, like, mental health stuff that I sort of had going on throughout high school but didn't ever get to a point where I needed to deal with it until I got to college. Uh, and the quarter system, 10-week terms, three intense classes, thought I was going to be an engineer my first year. <laughs> um, like, figuring out being away from the island. I grew up in Puerto Rico, born and raised. Um, and being away from the island, not just in, like... So, most people that I know who left the island went to places with a lot more Puerto Rican community, um, New York, Boston, like, Connecticut, schools that had more than one other island Puerto Rican at the school. I went to Bumblefuck Nowhere, New Hampshire. I where think it's I, called Hanover. I said what I said. <laughs> <laughs> I said what I said. <laughs> um, and there was one other island Puerto Rican at the time. And it was like, you grow up in Puerto Rico, you have this very idyllic image of what coming to the United States is going to be like. Um, you, I grew up with the idea that, like, as the only out gay kid in my high school, like, I was going to, like, get to the States and, like, live my best queer life and, like, be embraced immediately by the queer community. And it was going to be beautiful rainbows and sunshine and butterflies. And then I got to Dartmouth. <laughs> and I didn't realize that a lot of the cultural differences that I was going to experience were even, like, a possibility like, in Puerto Rico, when you meet someone, you hug, you kiss on the cheek, regardless of whether or not you know this person. And my first, like, not job or school interview handshake when meeting a new person happened my first day of being at Dartmouth. And it was this feeling of, like, this person is putting distance between myself and them with this hand extended at arm's length. And... It sounds like, I mean, I don't know what this sounds like to other people, but for a lot of folks that I've had this conversation with who grew up in kind of the continental U.S. and continental U.S. culture, it sounds kind of weird to be like, why is a handshake so, like, distancing? But I'm a hugger. I, like, come from a family of huggers. <laughs> I have never on the island met a stranger that I didn't, like, at least give a hug to, if not, like, hug, kiss, and be like, how's your mom? Um, and so I think 
a lot of those distancing interactions kind of triggered this social anxiety that I have of like, oh God, like what if I did something wrong or what if I'm wrong? And like, what if this distance that people are putting between myself and them isn't just a cultural thing, it's because of something that I did, um, which like, yeah, uh, that definitely, my coping mechanism for that was kind of retreating uh, into myself and um, I have always been an avid reader and I dove more like strongly into my books, into um, avoiding a lot of interactions with people because I didn't want to replicate that unless I knew there were people I could already trust. Mm. Um, so I have a couple of friends who I've been friends with since my first year and we we were floor mates and I remember having seen them at like our first floor meeting. I was like, little eager first year. I was like, I'm not going to eat any meal alone. Like, I'm going to do this. Is that a thing? Uh, I thought that that was a thing I should be doing when mm. I got to college. Because um, I was like, I don't want more feelings of isolation um, than I had already been experiencing. So I was like, okay, that's the one thing I know I can commit to. I will probably go straight back to my room and like ignore people after this. But I won't eat alone. So I approached this group of like... Th- uh, three girls who were from my floor and I was like hey like I know y'all um, do you mind if I sit with you for like lunch and we end up getting meals together for like a month before oh my little gay ass uh, thought I was like hiding it and like passing so well for like a hetero and one day one of the girls was like oh my god he is so cute like look at that boy and I was like oh yeah and like did the like dramatic like oh my god now they know and I was like oh uh uh I'm so sorry um by the way I'm gay and they all put on that like I feel like people might have seen this face uh the oh wow like I'm so not shocked by this revelation that you just gave me but I want to honor your moment um and I was like took me about 25 seconds before I just sank into my chair and was like, that obvious, huh? Like, I just, I give out that energy, and they were like, we didn't want to assume, but, I mean, yeah. And those, like, little interactions like that with, like, these three were three straight women, uh, two white women, one Asian woman, Love Claire and Alice, the two that I ended up staying in contact with. Shout but, out to Claire and Alice. Yeah, that's exactly what I just did. Um, and, like, it was little interactions like that with people who didn't, like, the people I ended up trusting were people who didn't have that distance from the jump, um, who didn't have the, like, I need to do the formal handshake and that interaction filtered through, I'm just going to name it, filtered through whiteness. Um, in the ways that, like, whiteness tells me I should be behaving. And, like, obviously, as a white-passing Latinx person, I definitely had some, like, passing benefits that allowed me to interact with people a little bit more freely than a lot of my friends of color um, who pass as people of color. Um, but I don't know where I was going with that. Um, yeah. Shout out Claire and Alice. We did that. Because they sort of saw you yes so it was um it was people like that who respected me for me and like that moment kind of really showed me that I could be myself and like I didn't have to introduce myself as one person and then later on reveal myself to be this like queer femme goddess that I felt I was on the inside uh and like it was that moment that I said fuck it uh my first year and like whoever I meet, whoever I interact with, like I'm gonna be as me as I thought I was back then, um, and just be like the gayest little gay boy. Which is the reason I say uh, thought I was back then is because, again, coming from the island, uh, predominantly Spanish-speaking, Roman Catholic as fuck, um, and Spanish language in and of itself is inherently gendered. Um, so, like. I was like, I'm not, I never really got along with boys growing up. Like, 
I was kind of like el nene who hung out with las nenas and like did my thing. Like I was, I thought I was the coolest kid around because like the girls let me play with like their Barbies at playtime and like I played house while my like uh, kindergarten wife went off to work and run her Lego empire. And I was like, I got the kitchen, babe. Like I have got our household and never because of like language because of inherent gendering that happens when you grow up uh in a spanish-speaking country with very deeply held roman catholic beliefs um i never really thought that there were other options other than man and woman and i knew that i wasn't a woman and i felt comfortable in my body so like i guess i'm a man question mark um and like there are a lot of moments in my life that looking back on it after having come out um, as gender fluid non-binary, um, I realized that like the moments of discomfort that I had um, experienced, moments of, I don't understand why I have to do this as a quote boy, quote, um, but I guess I'll do it because this is what's expected of me. And it wasn't until my first senior year of college um, that I like came to terms with the possibility of gender fluidity existing in somebody whose native language doesn't have words for them. Um, yeah, that was a lot to unpack. Um, but I think that I, so I started college as an engineer, moved into English and education and then realized that I was turning, like I said, I was a big reader, I was turning self-care into work, and that compounded with pre-existing anxiety and depression led me down a really bad road of like mental health struggles. Um, and so I went through about f the first four years of college kind of just powering through, pushing along, I was like, I have never had to seek help before. I've never, like, I went through high school and I was, like, doing my thing, being, like, great at academics, so, like, why should I, why am I struggling now? Like, maybe it's just because I'm not cut out to be at Dartmouth, this, like, Ivory Tower, Ivy League. Um, you can say White Tower. Yes. Um, I think my favorite description of Dartmouth was one of our MLK speakers was a grad school professor um, who was an amazing, like, <sighs> she had this energy about her that, like, immediately embraced and made space for the POC in the audience, um, and at the same time kind of, like, made you feel like there was this, this level of safety from the rest of the white people in the audience. Um, I don't know how else to explain it other than, like, this energy emanating off of this, like, amazing, like, woman of color who got up there and basically called Dartmouth out on its shit for about 45 minutes. And her first description of the school, because we had folks who traveled from the area who didn't really know the college, but like saw that there was something about Martin Luther King happening at the college. Like, I'm woke. I should go. Uh, and she was like, when this happens in the winter, and she's like, Sometimes I forget when I'm in my house with my children and my partner that when I walk back out onto this campus, I am in white, on white. Um, meaning, like, whiteness was... Oh, I hit the mic. Whiteness was everywhere uh, surrounding us and not just, like, people, but, like, the culture, the expectations around academia, the kind of, like ways that we were told we were too much as people of color um, subtly. So it's not that like you as a brown person are wrong for this and this. It's the, could you be a little more quiet? Um, could you laugh a little less loudly? Could you tone your music down a little bit? Um, for my friends, like uh, for friends who are brown, like a lot of them got so many different kinds of comments around well, maybe you should study a little bit harder or do a little bit more or why are you so... Like, a question I got even a lot was, um, why are you so involved in activism 
it's getting in the way of your classes. Like, shouldn't you be prioritizing your homework? Shouldn't you be prioritizing your academics? Um, from professors who, on paper and in their academic studies, professed to having this like background of social justice work and understandings of critical race theory, queer theory, all these things based on the research they had done, based on the syllabus they put together. But then there was that distance um, between your, like, the talk you talk and the walk you walk. Um, and this professor, like, getting up there and being, like, boldly a person of color, saying, like, calling out whiteness, naming it on this campus, and then also naming that, like, the whiteness permeated into nature and we were covered in, like, many feet of snow that, like, made us stand out as people of color and, like, made anything that didn't blend in with the lily whiteness of snow feel uncomfortable. Um, that was a moment where I was like, hmm, yeah, this is, this is the best descriptor of what being at Dartmouth was like for myself and for a lot of other folks. I am not going to tell their stories, but... Um, and like how do I say this as a very white passing Latina person I had never really like growing up in Puerto Rico and Carlos said this in the podcast episode like you grew up knowing like I don't know where in Africa my ancestors come from but I've got African ancestors I've got Taino ancestors and Taino blood like running through my veins, and I've got Spaniard blood. Um, some of that Spaniard blood came in consensually down the line. Most of it, 99.999%, came in through like assault and rape of my ancestors. And um, as somebody who like has that like very white skin tone, I never really thought that I would be read as brown. Um, and I had a very interesting moment. My first like couple of days um, on campus where huh, this little Becky ass white girl um, came up to me and was like oh my god your skin is so exotic and I was like yeah I moisturize like uh, my skin isn't cracked uh, I don't see that much of a difference between yours and my skin, uh, but cool, yeah, my skin's exotic. And it happened right after I'd gotten off the phone with like a couple of friends from home and I was speaking Spanish, so obviously there was that coded filter through that. And then she was like, and your hair. So for those who can't see me listening to the podcast, <laughs> I've got like curly hair. Fabulous. Thank you. Uh, probably like type 3b at the curliest like it is nowhere near kinky it is nowhere near like real tight curls but she was like your hair is so cool how do you get it to do that and i was like what <laughs> i i don't know how to answer this question so i'm just gonna smile and nod because i this is my like first interaction like this and I kind of like looked down at my phone, which was still in my hand, and out of the corner of my eye, I see it. I see these like little teeny tiny white fingers reaching into my field of vision. Don't like, do it. Don't do it. I'm six foot three. Thankfully, she got to my face with her hand and was like, oh, can you like, and like motions with her hand to like get me to like bend down. I was like, no. She was like, I just want to, I just want to feel, I just want to feel it. And I was like, and I'm done. Thank you so much for this great conversation. I'm going to go anywhere else but here. Um, and like, that was the first time where I felt exotic. Uh, and then at the end of my first year, I downloaded Grindr. <sighs> I say with a shudder. Uh, because, like, I'm very open about who I am. I'm an open book. I, if you're going to talk to me, I want you to know basic things about me that I don't want to have to explain to you. 
Um, so one of the first things I put on my profile was Puerto Rican, like native Spanish speaker, would love to speak Spanish to anybody who can speak Spanish up here in this like social Siberia. Uh, back then at Dartmouth, also here in Vermont. Um, and I immediately got the messages of like, ooh, papi, or like, oh my God, spicy. And I was like, listen, you clearly don't know Puerto Rico. None of our food is spicy. <laughs> like, we add hot sauce. <laughs> we know how to flavor things. Uh, we know how to blend spices so that our food tastes like something more than, like, corrugated cardboard mixed with water. Uh, but, like, there's nothing spicy about me. Thank you so much for that comment, though. Goodbye. And it was experiences like that on, like, dating apps that reminded me I didn't have the word for it at the time, and now I do because of academia, but, like, that my identity was intersectional. My identity wasn't just a gay kid at the time. My identity wasn't just a Puerto Rican gay kid. It was like, I had all of these layers of identity that make me up, and my queerness alone wasn't gonna let me interact with the rest of the queer community, quote unquote, and by that I mean the white queer community at Dartmouth, in the same ways that any other person would be able to interact with the rest of the white queer community. Um, and yeah, those were, all of that to go back to, like, those were the things that helped, that got me in, like, to drawing into myself, to blaming myself for a lot of these things that happened in terms of, like, shitty interactions with, whiter, with white people, uh, shitty interactions with rich people, shitty interactions with, like, U.S. Americans. Um, and I kept telling myself, like, well, if I tone it down or if I, like act in different ways or if I'm just not as loud as I like can't control because that is my volume and I speak with the voices of a line of very strong mothers who were never quiet <laughs> like maybe if I do all of these things I can like fit in here without knowing that what I was trying to fit into was like the white model um, and thankfully I had an amazing friend, I'm gonna drop a name again, CJ Jones, I love you. Uh, she is an amazing, amazing queer black woman who, like we met our first year being real awkward, like first years thinking we were gonna do engineering and didn't really interact that much uh, our first year. But every time I saw CJ, she was like, she remembered I was Puerto Rican, like she asked about my family, she came in for a hug and like, we, we just connected on a level that I hadn't had a chance to connect with people so quickly. Like, she felt like a casual acquaintance for so many, like, interactions, but looking back on it, a lot of what I was able to, like, feel while I was with her was instantly different than, like, my interactions with, like, my friends Claire and Alice, um, who, like, were wonderful people, but it took me a while to let down my walls around them once I had built them up. Um, and with CJ and other amazing queer folks of color who mentored me, who made sure that like they gave me the, this is how you survive a PWI as a brown person, as a queer brown person. Um, like those people got to me quick. They got to me and were like, hey, let's exist together. Like let's just be in each other's company and like I it helped give me like I would not have made it through those first four years um, without that queer and brown support um, in my life that queer and brown support that allowed me to be queer and brown and not queer or brown um, and yeah so the reason I say my first four years is because I ramble. I apologize. You're doing amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, um, like I mentioned, I struggle with anxiety and depression. And a lot of my upbringing unintentionally made me think that seeking help, especially for things like mental health, 
was not okay or made me weak or I just like and then you add on the layer of like already feeling slightly incompetent at a PWI and I was like well if I seek help then I'm proving them right if I ask for help and have to deal with mental health stuff then they're right I don't belong here I'm not strong enough or good enough to be in this place and a lot of that kept me from like recognizing one my anxiety until my junior year I had about a 36 hour long panic attack where I like could not leave my room I felt no need to eat drink water do anything I was just kind of like oh I'm dying like my heart is racing I can't no matter how deep I breathe, I can't get enough oxygen. Like, there's this pressure on my body that is, like, making me feel like I'm about to just go. Like, I felt that for about 36 hours, and about 20 hours in, I was listening. I uh, One of my forms of self-care is watching YouTube videos, and I was watching this one YouTuber who casually mentioned, like, having a panic attack on the subway and like in New York city and described what it felt like. I was like, Oh shit. Like what I'm having is a panic attack. Yikes. This seems intense. Um, so I gave myself permission to just like ride out the wave. Cause I didn't know what else to do and, um, made it out. I like immediately called a couple of friends and was like, Hey, you've mentioned anxiety before. Like, You've mentioned struggling with depression. One of them was a friend of mine who um, was, like, she was a mentor and a friend at the same time, and I trust this woman with, like, so many things throughout my life. But this was one thing where I remember her mentioning in passing, like, I've got anxiety, and, like, I've dealt with this, this, and this uh, in a PWI, and it was specifically triggered from being here, so, like... I can understand what that's like. And I was like, oh, okay, this is somebody I can go talk to about this. And I acknowledged that I had anxiety. I saw a counselor, like, one time. And then my last experience with a counselor, um, which was after having come out in high school, I told my parents I wanted to see somebody because I was struggling with, like, self-image and self-worth stuff. And unknowingly, thankfully, my parents are two of the most amazing people in my life who, even when they haven't all the way understood um, my identity or haven't all the way understood who I am, have, like, tried. Um, At the bare minimum have been like, okay, we respect that this is who you are. We'll work on it. We don't know if... um, And unknowingly, they ended up finding me a counselor who basically kept telling me that like being gay was a choice and I could keep turning it off um and it wasn't until one day that like I don't remember exactly how it happened but I'm about to tell you the storyteller's side of me's version of what it felt like um so my mom walks into the appointment while we're having a conversation and I think I had mentioned passing like something about this therapist made me feel weird but I'll go back once or twice Um, And she happened to walk in for something. And this therapist was telling me, like, well, this is a choice you make. And was trying to, like, get me to believe that, like, this is a choice. And I was like, nah, bitch. I've been gay. (laughs) I've been queer. I know this. My first memory is of, like, me hiding under the covers to pray that, like, I would grow up to be, like, Jack on Will and Grace, who was gay and flamboyant as hell. And, like... That moment, my mom walks in and my mom, like, heard what this guy was saying and immediately was like, oh, no, like, not my child. And what it felt like to my, like, 13-year-old self was, like, my mom walked in with this, like, giant aura of, like, protective mama bear, lion, uh, and was, like, like, swooped me up and didn't say this to the therapist, but what it felt like to a child, I was like, she said, fuck off to the therapist and like (laughs) punched him in the face and like fought a horde of other ignoramuses on our way out and like protected me and defended me. And so like that was a very positive outcome from a very shitty and like 
what I didn't realize was a very traumatizing experience with therapy. Um, and I didn't realize that it was traumatizing until I saw my first counselor for anxiety and was like, I, something about like speaking to you, something inside me is holding me back. And after I left this therapist's office, I had a flashback to like the two conversations I had with this therapist before my mom stepped in, where he kept trying to convince me that it was a choice and I had made the wrong decision. And I was like, oh God, what if that's what therapy is? Like, what if therapy means queer erasure? What if therapy means um, having to deny a part of myself in order to deal with this new thing that like, I don't even have a word for Like, I think it might be anxiety, but I don't have a diagnosis. Um, and uh, it wasn't until I, I worked at the kind of, it was the Center for Gender and Student Engagement, which was a very long title to say like, a place where queer folks and folks who were exploring their gender identity could come kind of do their thing. Um, it wasn't until I went to work the next day and mentioned like, I think I might need counseling to my boss. And she was like, oh, okay. Like, what are you looking for? Like, would I am assuming you would want a like therapist who has experience with queerness. And I was like, I can ask for that. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, and she recommended this amazing woman who was also um, Puerto Rican. She was from the island, and I was like, okay. Like, she gave me a list of probably seven people, but one of them had, like, Puerto Rico and, like, queer specialist. I was like, I'm going to give this a shot, and something in my soul, something in my, like, ancestral knowledge was like, this is a woman you can trust just from reading her name, and thankfully I was right. Uh, she got me through a lot, uh, helped me recognize that, like, I struggle with anxiety and my anxiety as, like, my not dealing with my anxiety had led me into depression and I had been experiencing a lot of depressive symptoms, um, and ignoring them. And unfortunately, by the time I finally, like, got comfortable in counseling, it was too late for my academics. (laughs) I had failed four classes uh, almost back-to-back. So I've been through two terms, which means like two 10-week periods in a row. We do three classes per 10-week period. And I had been through uh, two terms in a row where I passed one class a term. And now looking back on it, I'm very proud of myself that I did pass that one class a term when I was going through what I was going through. But Um, The college uh, has systems in place where, like, if you failed a certain number of credits, you get put under academic review, and I ended up getting suspended for the way that my anxiety had impacted my grades. Um, And I've never been more thankful for something that I thought was going to destroy me, Uh, because right before I got suspended, it was when I figured out gender fluidity and, like, non-binary identity and, like, had this like beautiful aha moment of like I can exist as me without having to identify as a man like there are other options out there um that was convoluted um but to go off on another tangent because that is how Puerto Rican conversations work we tell like 45 different stories before we get to the main one um I so I came out as gender fluid my first senior year um And I had this conversation with somebody that I was on a first date with. um, And they were like, oh, yeah, like, I identify as non-binary. And, like, this is what that means to me. And was very wonderfully open. And was like, how do you identify? And at that point, I had done enough, like, gender sexuality studies classes. And, like, I'd been working with the queer center at the school for like three out of my four years like I had all this knowledge I just didn't know that it applied to me Um, and I was like oh like I use he him pronouns and like um I think I'm a guy he was like and uh this person was like yeah okay why I think like tell me a little bit more about that and spent about a half hour just telling stories about my childhood where like I didn't really fit into what a guy was supposed to do I ask for Barbie movies uh, for Christmas and had my first experience of like gendering from my parents that was like, oh, well, Santa doesn't bring boys, girl things. Um, or like, Santa Claus no le trae eh, juguetes de nena a los nenes. And I was like, hmm, 
what this? <laughs> what are we doing here? Uh, everybody in our class watched the Barbie movies when our dance teacher broke her ankle. Like, we all watched the Barbie movies. They didn't, like, split us up. So, like, why is it a girl thing? But I'm going to file that away. I'm going to deal with that later. Okay. And I was like, cool. So I apparently am a boy. Good to know. Um, and told, like, three or four stories like that. And eventually was like, hmm, let me get on my phone for a second. And I Googled non-binary. I, like, found a Tumblr blog that, like, broke down a lot of non, like, non-binary trans umbrella terms and identities and, like, this person just patiently sat there, like, we are on our first date. And this wonderful human just sat there and was like, take your time. Like, we've got this. This will be great. And I was like, gender fluid. This one reads right. Like, this one feels good. Um, does that mean that, like, I am this? And so I looked them in the eye and was like, I, so I think I'm gender fluid. And they're like, you said that one with more confidence. Like, that, I think, felt more like I am. Does that feel right to say? I was like, ah! <laughs> I apologize for podcast listeners. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was one of those moments where I was really like, I hit realization, and then my upbringing hit me back <laughs> and was like, what about this? Like, what about a language that doesn't recognize non-binary identities? What about a language that doesn't have different pronoun options? What about, like, all these experiences with your parents that they told you, like, boys and girls do separate things or your teachers or friends or friends' parents? And, like, I kind of said, fuck it, which was I've never really been the kind of person to just say fuck it, like, uh, until then. I've gotten more about that life after my time away, but I was very, like, anal retentive. Like, I had to have knowledge. I had to have a plan. I had to understand everything before I committed to this. And uh, once I got to the, like, gender-fluid moniker, label, title, whatever we want to call it, um, something in my body was like, yes. Like, I felt... You know how, like, after a really long day, your shoulders are up to your ears and, like, your back is all hunched and, like, you've been taking breaths that last, like, less than oxygen takes to process into your bloodstream and you finish and you, like, stretch a little bit and your shoulders come down and you take that first deep breath? I felt my soul do that. Like, I felt something in me finally say, thank you. Like, hey, girl, we here. <laughs> um, and then this was about two weeks before I got my suspension. Um, and I was like, oh, shit, I have to go home. Like, I have to go home for the next three academic terms, which meant, like, nine months. Um, how am I going to do this? Like, I had bought what I'm wearing today. Not the dress I'm wearing, but the purple cardigan. Uh, so to friends of mine who will be listening to this, you know exactly what I'm wearing. And you know exactly that I feel like Beyonce in the grown mu woman music video when I walk around in this, like, purple flowy cape cardigan witch thing. Um, a friend of mine described me as one day that I wore it just, like, walking around campus. She was like, I looked across the green, and it was like Ursula the Sea Witch had come to life. And it was at that moment that I realized that my childhood idol... <laughs> had always been Ursula, the, like, drag queen modeled, fat, femme, powerful woman who was like, I have power. I'm being restricted by this, like, man-king from using my power, so I'm going to fight back, and I'm going to use my power. Uh, so all that to say that this was my first item. I purchased it off, unfortunately, Amazon.com. I will not be doing that again, but... Um, this felt kind of like my first piece of armor, my first piece of like embracing myself. And the compromise I gave myself, I was like, I'll leave all my femme stuff. I'll leave all my like real femme stuff. Uh, in those two weeks, I used more than I should have of my paycheck to buy skirts, tops, shoes. 
I am a size 13 in men's, 15 in women's, so that meant drag queen heels, which were expensive. But I got these. I just, I love bragging about these every time I remember them because they're my favorite article. I have these like thigh high red pleather six inch heeled boots that like <sighs> I feel like Beyonce in. <laughs> and uh, I was like, okay, I'll leave everything, but I will take this cardigan with me. Like, even if I keep it in a backpack, if I keep it in a drawer, and like after I close my room door at night, I can like put it on and just kind of exist as me in my own room or have these moments, like, I'll be fine. And the day before my mom got up to help me pack up my room, because they also do this really great thing that is not at all classist and not at all ableist, where they give you 48 hours to move out of your room. And I live in Puerto Rico. Like, last-minute tickets can cost upwards of $800. Uh, I, like, have a partial disability. I can't move my things myself. Like, I have to hire people to help me move, or I have to, like rally troops of people to help me get my stuff into storage. And I, like, was in a very big panic when I called my mom and was having this conversation with, like, oh, my God, how am I going to move out of here in 48 hours? And my mom, being the amazing superheroine that she is, was like, don't worry, I'm coming. <laughs> like, I'm getting on a plane. I've got flight miles from work. I don't all the way understand what happened to lead you to a suspension, but I know you are panicking and I know you are not in a good place. So I'm gonna come, I'm gonna help you move, and then we're gonna fly back together. Um, and my mom got up there. The day before she gets there, I was like, I need to tell my parents. I need to have this conversation with my parents. And I don't wanna have this conversation out loud with my parents. Not that I had any indication that they wouldn't be accepting. My mom sat down on the edge of my bed in ninth grade and asked me to turn off the TV and was like, are you gay? And I was so caught unawares that I was like, uh-huh. And then proceeded to have an hour and a half long conversation with me crying through my hands, like where I was only able to like nod or shake my head as answers to questions. And they were like, okay, like you're gay. Cool. We can deal with that. We don't know a lot about what this means, but we will go on this journey with you to figure out what this means. So, like, that was my previous experience with coming out to my parents, and I didn't really have an inkling that they would react negatively other than the gendering I had experienced as a kid. And so I sent an email to my parents and was, like, basically sent them the coming out post that I had put up on Facebook because I was like, I already did the emotional labor. I'll just send it, and we'll have the conversation in Spanish when we get home um, or if I have to. And both of them sent me back emails of, like, I don't know what this means, um, but okay. And I was like, well, what this means is I'm coming home with like cotton candy pink hair and like a French tip manicure like on my long ass nails because J-Lo had a French tip in like um, that movie with Matthew McConaughey where she like home wrecks or whatever, a bride. But J-Lo had it. And I was like, J-Lo is the peak of Puerto Rican femininity. And I was like, well, if I'm going to go home and I'm going to try to be femme at home, I might as well get the J-Lo French tip. So I got those done and I told my parents and they were like, okay, like, we'll figure it out. We will deal with this somehow. And uh, I spent, I originally was supposed to spend nine months at home. I ended up spending about a year and a half. Uh, I found the leading queer therapist in Puerto Rico by accident, um, driving past my high school one day. His office just happened to be there, and I saw a number for a therapist, and I was like, I should probably do this again since I'm here for nine months. Might as well actually deal with my mental health. And I have my brother, my bro younger brother to thank for that because he, whew, he was up here at UVM, actually. Um, for a semester and a half and had a little bit of a hard time dealing with whiteness and also like the distance between people. He has a harder time kind of like reaching out to people than I did. And then on top of that had like very severe depression triggered by a physical condition in his thyroid. And he had been going to therapy since he went back home. Um, he had been very open with me about like anxiety and depression. And I was like, well, if he can do it, and, like, he's my younger brother. <laughs> like, 
I can do this. And my parents handled that so much better than I ever thought they would. So I was like, okay, I can do this. And the second thing my therapist said to me was, you're afraid of talking about your gender identity with your family. Um, And like, why? And I burst into tears because if you can't tell by now, I'm a crier. Uh, And I was like, oh, crap. Um, Language tells me that, like, I don't exist. Like, Spanish tells me that I don't exist if I am not man or woman. Like, everything ends with an O or an A for man or woman. Like, chairs, tables, floors, microphones, everything has a gender in Spanish. Um, But there wasn't a gender-neutral option. And... On top of that, I recounted the, like, stories of gendering as a child and was like, yeah, uh, this is why I'm afraid of talking to my parents about it. He was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send you, uh, like, highlights. So he had written a book about what it meant to be specifically, like, non-binary and trans in Spanish Um, or... He had written a book that had chapters about what being non-binary and trans in Spanish meant. Um, and he sent me those chapters over email and was like, have your parents read this. And then, like, just bring them in. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have my mom read this. My dad never been a huge reader. Um, and then also, like, my mom is just the person I've been closest to my entire life. So I was like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it one at a time. And I'm going to do it with mom first. Um, So Mama, like, sent her some things, and she was like, I also want to meet with your therapist, because I don't know if you're dealing with what you're going through. And, like, that was when I noticed that, or when I realized that I was exhibiting, like, even at home, even somewhere that I did feel safe, I was still exhibiting, like, really anxious, depressive behavior that was, like, noticeable on the outside. Like, my ass thought I was hiding all of it. And my mom was like, you're not okay. Like, and that is okay, but we have to get you somewhere where you can be okay. So she met with my therapist. They had about probably the longest 45 minutes of my life with me sitting out in the waiting room. And then when I walked in, um, my therapist was like, is there anything you want to say to your mom? And I was like, kind of like, I mean, I told you who I am. Like, I told you what my identity is. We had had some conversations about transness in the past before I knew I was trans that didn't feel all the way satisfying, so I brought those up, and she was just like, I love you. Like, I love you no matter what, and she's an information gatherer, so she's like, I'm going to read. I'm going to find what I can find, and I'm not going to put you through the work of teaching me. I'm going to teach myself, and that moment kind of, like, unraveled this knot of, like, dysphoria, gender identity-based anxiety. Um, And I realized that, like, a lot of the root of my anxiety came from denying my gender fluidity, came from denying parts of myself that I felt didn't fit into the script I was given as a young Puerto Rican boy at the time. Um, Yeah. And on another tangent, I remember a moment where I was like, probably a year before I had my second panic attack on the floor of my mom's bedroom, like hyperventilating, crying, like could not stop myself. And my mom was like, what's going on? Like something's going on. I was like, what if I'm not a boy? Like what if, what if I am trans? This was after we had had that unsatisfying conversation about transness. And she was like, you are what you are. And if that is trans, and like at the time she was thinking a trans woman, um, if that is trans, then we'll figure it out. Um, And I was like, what about dad? Like, what if Papa like doesn't, isn't okay with this? Like, I love both my parents to death. Like, I panicked about like, what will this look like? And my mom was like, this is my house. (laughs) Like, if your dad or your brother aren't okay with it, I will get them there or we will figure something else out because I pay the bills. (laughs) Uh, And so that conversation with my mom and my therapist reminded me of that. And 
our ride home was probably the closest my mom and I have ever been. And we didn't really say anything. We still don't all the way talk about a lot of things related to gender identity just because I hadn't breached a lot of those subjects. And I think my parents are kind of giving me the space to bring up these conversations, which is awesome. Um, But from that moment on, like having remembered that my mom was like, I'm going to love you no matter what. And whoever doesn't want it and lives in my house can go live somewhere else. Then it gave me the strength to be like, fuck it. I'm going to do the year-long work of unlearning a lot of the internalized hatred that I had about my own like non-binary identity and cry the tears I had to cry, scream the screams I had to scream, uh, read and like re-educate myself on a lot of things. All of this with the help of amazing friends who every day like would check in with me, friends who knew about my gender identity, friends who like when I came out as gender fluid were like, all right, does that mean you want different pronouns? Like, are you okay with the pronouns you've been using? I was like, I don't know. Like, I didn't know pronouns were a thing that like existed outside of a grammar textbook uh, until I got to college. Like, can we try different pronouns and see how it goes? And had a core group of friends who for over a year and a half, like, switched up all different kinds of pronouns when referring to me just to, like, let me figure out, like, does that one feel comfortable? Does this one feel safe? And so all of this support was pouring in over and over and over again and kind of bolstered me through, um, primarily from my brown and out communities um, back at Dartmouth. And, yeah, then I... So took about a year, an extra half year because of, like, family health stuff. And I was like, all right, I put, like, four years of blood, sweat, and tears into Dartmouth College in Bumblefuck, Nowhere, New Hampshire. I'm getting this degree. Um, I'm going to go back. I am going to exist as myself. And I'm going to prove to all the people who have been saying from day one that, like, I couldn't make it, that I can, I will, and I'm going to look fabulous doing it. Um, and I got back, had a very good first summer. Um, so Dartmouth does classes over the summer, um, quarter, which with just the sophomore class and then folks who want to stay. And I was like, this is a good transition point. I can do this. And then did finished up my degree, uh, in June. And I like put on my graduation robe and, crossed that stage and did not shake my president's hand because I didn't want to deal with somebody who couldn't say whether or not white supremacy was a bad thing. Um, And my parents, like, were so excited about everything that I had done. Um, And then the summer hit, and I was like, oh, I had met Sunshine at a New England Queer People of Color conference. And Sunshine mentioned that the Pride Center up in Burlington, Vermont, was looking for a trans program coordinator. And I was like, I spent six winters in Hanover, New Hampshire. And my brother said the winters in Burlington were worse. (laughs) Do I want to do this? (laughs) But by that point, I had applied to probably like 37 jobs. (laughs) 27, that was a lie. 27 jobs. And had gotten either no word back or rejection. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. I went through the interview process, got selected, and started about a month ago. So I am a Vermont baby. Uh, Before that, I had been to Burlington twice, once for my interview and one to move my brother out of UVM. Uh, So I dove in headfirst into the work here at the Pride Center. Yeah. Yeah. I rambled for about an hour, y'all. I apologize. (laughs) It was the most beautiful ramble I've ever been on. Thank you. And I apologize to your editor in advance. (laughs) No, this is going to be a fun one. Um, So that being said, (laughs) what does black and brown queer culture in Vermont look like to you? 
I said this to you when you asked me over Facebook yesterday. I'm very excited to figure out what that means. <laughs> um, I've been in uh, Burlington for about a month. I have had so little energy after work to figure out, like, to go out, to, like, meet new people and extrovert that I've kind of just been, like, reading and healing myself and taking care of myself and trying to find an apartment because uh, that's rough. Um, and it wasn't until you asked me. And, like, I'd been listening to Brown and Out, so I knew the question was coming. And then you told me you were going to ask me the question, and my brain was like, you haven't thought about this. You don't have an answer. Uh, and I think the most honest answer is I want to figure it out now that I'm feeling a little bit more settled. Um, and looking out into this room, I legitimately, when Reggie and I planned this live event about, you want to say a week ago, to be generous? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, like thought we were going to get a handful of people, like three or four folks who were going to sit there and like stare at us recording. And I'm looking out at a room full of beautiful black, brown, and queer people. Uh, and it reminds me that like, even when we are told, like a lot of the narrative I heard about Vermont was it was very white and there are no queer people of color. Um, even when we're told we don't exist, we're there. We are everywhere, and so, yeah, I, one, want to figure out what that is like on a personal level, and then two, as, like, a part of the Pride Center, I also want to bring QTPOC stuff more actively into my work life and begin to create more space for us, not just, like not just in separate events, because I'm not about that separate but equal bullshit, but, like, how do I work with all of y'all and all the folks across Vermont who are brown and out um, that want to have a space that feels safe, but maybe the Pride Center isn't that space, or maybe they've had a history with the Pride Center that I don't know about. Um, how do we work through that, and how during wh however long I'm here at the Pride Center, hopefully very, very long, because I won't get fired. Um, <laughs> but how do I bring my brownness that is, like, I'm the brownest person in the office right now. There are four of us. I, the white passing, like, I am pale as hell right now because I have not had time to sit out on the beach uh, in about a year and a half. Uh, am the brownest person in the office. And so, like... I, brownness has been something that like got me through six years of a predominantly white institution. And I am proud to know that there's Taino African blood running through my veins. Like I've been working with my dad to rediscover um, his grandfather, her, his father's uh, family's connection to Taino religion and practice. Um, and like, not on that, like, ancestry, like, blood quantum bullshit, because that feels like filtering our brownness through, like, a white quantification that, to me, sort of feels like we're preparing to wipe y'all out. So, like, if we know how much you are, we know how much we need to inject into your, like, bloodline to erase that. Uh, but in a, like, my ancestors are who they are. Like, I am who I am today because I am, like, fueled by ancestors who have been fighting this fight that I've been fighting. Um, both ancestors of blood descent, but also my transcestors. The transcestors who have been here um, and aren't related to me by blood, but strengthen me and fuel me every day and remind me that, like, we've been here. We've been here since before colonialism. Um, and we will continue to be here and we'll continue to like thrive and flourish. So how can I, as somebody who's getting paid to do queer work, um, use that to make it so that we can thrive and flourish in spaces that white people like to say were not made for us? Yeah. A word. <laughs> um, <clears throat> So, 
Um, yeah. When do you feel most brown and out? In rooms like this. Um, I, well, okay. That's a two-part question. <laughs> two-part answer. Because I'm Puerto Rican and I don't make anything easy. Um, I feel most brown and out when I'm surrounded by, like, my fellow QTPOC folks. I feel most brown and out when I can be brown and out. Um, emphasis on that and. Um, but then I also feel most brown and out when I'm wearing rainbow pride gear on the New York subway in the summer that I'm interning and this white girl puts her hand in my hair when I'm sitting and then proceeds to tell me that the uh, rainbow koki uh, in Taino, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Pictography that I'm wearing is actually appropriative of Cherokee cultures. And I saw red. I quickly swatted her hand. I was like, I'm reading. I have headphones on. Like, what about me tells you I want to talk to you? Um, and I got up and was like, one, don't ever put your hands in anybody's hair. Don't ever touch somebody without asking their consent. My island is a Taino island. First and foremost, like, the land that I come from is Taino, and I know the background of this symbol on my shirt. I know the culture that it comes from correctly. I'm not out here calling it the first Cherokee, the first Native American nation that I remember from a social studies class and that I still think does not exist anywhere. Um, I know where this comes from. I honor, I honor the history. I honor the ancestors who used this pictography. And you're out here trying to tell me that I'm appropriating culture when you put your hand in my hair when you put your french fry fingers into my beautiful black and brown curls. No, madam. And I got off the subway at the next stop, waited for another subway, and got back on. But it's those moments also where I feel most browning out because I am pushed into that space of brown and outness without my consent sometimes. And I feel like based on reactions people can relate <laughs> um which both gives me strength to know that like we've been through this and we're still here and we're going to keep going forward hopefully not going through this again and also like reminds me of the entitlement that comes with all whiteness but also like u.s american whiteness that believes that Racism's over because Obama was president for eight years. Um, gay people can get married now, so there's no transphobia. Like, all of these different ways that American, U.S. Americans, because the Americas encompass two whole continents and the Caribbean, um, U.S. Americans like to, U.S. white Americans like to tell themselves that, like, they don't have a hand in like the destructions of so many things and so many cultures and then like to be the first to tell you that you're appropriating a culture that's not yours when it in fact is your culture and they're misnaming that. Yeah. Does that answer your question, Reggie? <laughs> yes, I think so. <sighs> is there anything else you'd like to add? Mm. I mean... One thing I like to leave spaces with is reminders to take care of yourself. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, remember to drink some water, take a deep breath, stretch that back out for a little bit, look away from your phone for like five minutes, uh, and also just like find whatever it is that refreshes you and gives you that like healing energy that we need to make it through the days as brown and out people in Vermont or wherever you're listening to this and don't be ashamed that like you might need to give yourself time to do that like taking the time for self-care has to come first because a quote that is currently on my wall um, that I believe either Skylar or Sunshine here at the Pride Center um, put out as a campaign is you can't set yourself on fire to keep other people warm and after like four plus years of setting myself on fire to keep other people warm. I like to leave spaces reminding people that if you 
can't take care of yourself, if you can't surround yourself with people who can care for you, if you physically aren't able to care for yourself, then caring for other people will become draining and toxic for yourself. Um, so yeah, I want to leave it on remember to care for yourself. I know loving ourselves can be difficult sometimes, um, but at the very least, remember to care for yourself, your the body you exist in, and the person that you are in whatever way that looks. Thank you very much for speaking with us today, <laughs> Gustavo. Thank you for having me, Reggie. Why don't you give yourselves a round of applause? <laughs> and thank you to our live audience for being here and giving me the space to ramble on for about, what was that, an hour? It was long enough, uh -huh. but, but not yeah. too long. Beautiful. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much.